Welcome to the Own Your Choices, Own Your Life podcast. I know you are here wanting to change and rewrite your story. You are desiring to step into the impact that you know you were here to create. I am here to guide you with the proven tools and strategies used by myself and our speakers to support you in taking radical responsibility in your life and learning how to own your choices to change your story. My name is Marsha Van Weinsberg. I am a storytelling business coach, master NLP trainer, speaker, podcaster, and seven times published author. My clients have found freedom and purpose from overcoming their shame stories and learning how to share them with the world. I am so grateful you are here. Let's get started. Welcome back to the show. Today, we are speaking with Vic Ferrari. Vic, I love the name Ferrari, but Vic is a retired NYPD detective turned author. And he is here, honestly, in just such a different spin on the show in the sense that we just need some humor. We all need some humor. And it's exactly what Vic does as he is here today sharing his journey behind the scenes stories from years as an NYPD detective turned multi-published author and podcaster. He has published multiple, multiple books. He's the author of NYPD Law and Disorder, Grand Theft Auto, NYPD's Flying Circus, NYPD Through the Looking Glass, and Dickheads and Debauchery, which I love. And is he's really, as he says, one of the funniest people that he knows. I just love this. I loved this conversation and it was just fun with no formal training or Harvard degree. Vic has managed to carve out a niche in the literary world. When he's not shamelessly promoting his books, he is a frequent guest on the nationally syndicated radio show, Sterling on Sunday. Sit back, just enjoy this episode because it's an absolute blast. Welcome to the show today, Vic. I am looking forward to this conversation. Hi, Marsha. Thanks for having me on your show. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. So you have a really interesting background and job that you had for many years. Can you just start with telling us a little bit about who you are and what it was that you did for a living for a while? Sure. My name is Vic Ferrari. I'm a retired 20-year member of the New York City Police Department, born and raised in New York City, city kid, lived in the Bronx, always knew what I wanted to do since the age of five. I knew I wanted to become a New York City police detective. Uh, by the age of 10, my friends and I used to sneak into the post office and steal FBI wanted posters off the wall and conduct manhunts around the neighborhood. A picture pack of 10-year-old boys going into stores with wanted posters trying to look for some guy wanted for a bank robbery in Alabama. I knew what I wanted to do. By age 20, uh, I took the exam. I passed. And uh, by 21, I was in the police academy, and uh, I had a wonderful 20-year career with the New York City Police Department. I worked in a lot of specialized units. I worked early on in a DUI unit. I worked in a decoy unit. It's called mm -hmm. anti-crime, where you're in plain clothes going after pickpockets and robberies in progress. Uh, I worked in narcotics division for a while doing buy and bust operations during the crack epidemic in the 90s. And my last 10 years, I was a detective in the NYPD's auto crime division. So... Anything with chop shops, stolen vehicles, exporting stolen vehicles out of the country, changing VIN numbers on, on stolen cars for resale, a lot of organized crime, mafia cases. Um, you got to remember, New York City in the 90s, 
we were averaging 150,000 stolen vehicles a year. So we were quite busy. Let's just put it that way. And we would pick off the garden variety pain in the ass car thief. But yeah. our main objective was to go after like the kingpins, the guys running the salvage yards and the chop shops and or guys that were shipping cars out of the country. And, you know, after a 20 year run, it was time to do something else. I retired. I moved down to Florida and I started writing and I've written a series of books about my experiences and the characters and interesting criminals that I came across during my time with the New York City Police Department. Wow. Good for you. Like, good for you. So, I mean, I want to get into writing and what you're doing with writing. Um, I want to chat a little bit. So did the 10-year-old ever find anybody from the Wanted Posters? Yes. that That's a funny, you know, it, it, I have a photographic memory and I always tell that like a lot of people went to jail because of my memory. Yes. Um, I I had recognized people off of wanted posters later on in life. I remember one time I was down at Bronx Criminal Court um, for something. And uh, I always would look at the wanted posters and there's no shortage of wanted posters. I mean, the New York City Police Department, we have 77 police stations with anywhere between 30 and 40,000 members. I mean, it's the largest police department probably in the world. So there's no shortage of criminals and wanted posters. And I remember... I seen a guy standing in front of the courthouse eating a hot dog at a hot dog vendor. And I go, I think that guy's wanted for a home invasion, right? So I go, I, I walk, this is pre-cell phone. I walk into the courthouse. I find a phone. I call up Bronx robbery. And I said, are you looking for this guy? And they go, yeah, where is he? I go, he's in front of the courthouse getting a hot dog. Like, could you grab him for us and just hold on to him? I says, I'll do it. I says, but don't leave me hanging. Then I'm, you know, I'm walking around with this guy in cuffs, right? Because when you go into like the court system, like Bronx Central Booking and Manhattan Central Booking, they want you to have an arrest worksheet, an arrest number, the guy's fingerprinted. They just don't want you bringing in VIP guests. So I'm walking outside. The guy's finishing his second hot dog. I slap a set of cuffs on him. He's like, what the? F I drag him in and I bring him into the court system. And they're like, no, 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 you can't. You got to bring him to a precinct. I'm like, listen to me. The guy from Bronx robbery swore in a stack of Bibles. They're going to come and take this schmuck out of here. So just could you, and they were like really busting my balls about it, but yeah. yes, he went to, and he did jail time for it. But yeah, I, I have, um, I've been involved with a couple of things with people I've recognized off of wanted posters that, that had wound up doing time in the pokey. Oh, I just can't even, I just got this visual. I mean, I'm sure I'm going to get a few of them today, but I just got this visual in the sense, like, even if you just understand like 77 police stations, 30 to 40,000 members, like that's like, just to put into context, how big that is and how many different um, divisions you have. So, wow. So you came out and did you go directly like in, were you on beat cop for a bit or did you go directly into being a detective? Was that your goal all along? My goal along was to become a detective. Um, but see, the NYPD works like this. So in my time, it, it's changed. But in my time, you would do six months in the academy. Then you would go to what's called field training. They used to call them NSUs or FTUs field training units. So the way it worked back in my time, they would take. 50 rookies, like in the Bronx, you had three different field training units, and they were broken up to each field training unit covered three precincts. So I was in the South Bronx. So in my field training unit, there was like 50 rookies, mm -hmm. and we had four or five sergeants. And what they would do is they would sprinkle you off on foot posts in the South Bronx, and you were expected to answer the radio and pick up calls. And we didn't know what the hell we were doing. And 
then they would have a sergeant out with a couple of rookie cops and he would drive around. And if you got in over your head, you would call the sergeant. He would show up and guide you. So you would do that for six months. And then after that, you would get assigned a precinct. Now, the NYPD works like this. If we call it juice or a, a hook or a crane. So if you have family on the job, like you have a brother or a father, anybody above the rank of sergeant, captain, inspector, you're going to go to a nice precinct. You're going to go basically to where you want to work, right? My dad was a butcher. I wound up in this burnt out, dumped out precinct in the Bronx. They filmed the movie Fort Apache, the Bronx. It's a really good movie. It's about the South Bronx, all burnt out, crack zombies walking around. And, you know, when you go to an NYPD precinct as a rookie cop, it's almost like going to jail for the first day. Everybody's looking at you. They're sizing you up. The old timers do not want to talk to you. They want nothing to do with you. It's like they, they forget that they were rookies at one time. And if you do get w stuck working with an old time and they tell you, don't touch that radio when I'm driving the car, it's like, okay. And after a while, they want to make sure you're not a know-it-all. You don't have a big mouth. You're not a troublemaker. You're not causing problems. Then they'll warm up to you. And then, you know, you, you're one of the guys or one of the girls. But until that process, you're walking on eggshells. So I was in this burnt out South Bronx precinct. And the only people that got sent there were morons like me that didn't have family on the job to get me to a nicer place or people who had screwed up in other places, mm -hmm. guys that got jammed up for other things that they couldn't fire. So they put them there to punish them. And when I was there, you had a lot of guys from the Vietnam War era. And a lot of those guys weren't right. And. They applied by their own set of rules. And I was like, you know what? Calgon, take me away. Like, what, what am I doing here? Right. Like, there's not even, you know, like people, I'm walking into people. It's like spotting somebody with a full set of teeth was like, didn't happen every day. So I knew I, I was miserable there. And I put in for a borough unit that, that was looking for rookie cops. And that was out of the frying pan into the fire because I was like, oh, this is a borough wide unit. I could work anywhere in the Bronx. They were going through a personnel change. With, there was like a war going on between the administration, the old timers. I got thrown in the thick of that. I'm like, what the? I just, I just want to be a cop, man. I don't want to be involved in the politics. I want to arrest the bad guys and help people. So eventually, after jumping on a couple of hot rocks, I, I found a nice precinct, and then I just started my career. Yeah, I think that's there. I mean, we all know there's politics behind every single, like every single profession. It's there, right? But I definitely, I had to believe that it's like, who do you know? Like, oh, yeah. Right? Who do you know? Family, sure. Where do you want to go? And we look after our own kind of mentality. I'll tell you a funny story about that. So I'm a cop about five years, right? My mm -hmm. younger brother, who in my books I refer to as Fredo, like Fredo Corleone and the Godfather, the dim-witted brother. He thinks it's funny, but whatever. Well, he's Fredo. Anyway, so Fredo is a correction officer. He's a jail guard, and he wants to come into the NYPD. So he's in the police academy, and he uses my father. So my father comes up to me, and he says, um, your, brother, your, your brother's graduating from the police academy. I said, I know. He says, um, he wants to work in the 4-9 and the 4-3. Now, those, those are two precincts that were really close to where we lived. And they were nice places. And I said, Dad, he should really work in a dump first to learn the job, learn all these different things, and then I'll help him. And he's like, no, well, you did it for your friend. And because I had a friend of mine, I got into my precinct. So I said, all right, let me look into it. So I call up one of my friends 
And this guy's wife, aunt, worked in the chief of personnel's office. So that's like a huge hook. That that can get you anywhere, right? So I call him up and I says, listen, I know you helped me out with one guy. I got my brother graduate. And he goes, I'd love to help you. He says, but the woman retired. I said, oh, shit. And he goes, and that chief is no longer there. I said, all right. So I call back my father and he's like, well, you can't do anything. I said, I'm going to make some more calls. I said, but that was the call and it's not there anymore. So I don't know what I can do for him, right? My brother keeps this up. You're going to help me out? I said, I'm going to try. You know, that ship sailed. So my brother graduates the police academy and he winds up in a dump. And oh, did I hear it? You did this for your friend. And you, I'm like, listen, dude, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't walk on water. I, I, you know, I had one, I had one phone call. I said, if you would have gotten hired two years ago, I could have gotten you anywhere you wanted, but that's it. So, yeah, you definitely have to know somebody. You'll be ex- incredibly lucky. That doesn't surprise me at all. Um, what years were you working from? Like, what was that 20 year span? Yeah, 1987 to 2007. So you were there over 2001. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I was, I, I was, yeah, yeah I, I worked 9-11. I was down on the ground walking around by about 1.30 in the afternoon down at ground zero. I just want, I'm sure people ask you that, but I just wanted to um, touch into that topic and see what that was, what that time was like, because obviously from all different perspectives, right? Like you're there in like on the ground working together, us, rest of us watching TV, trying to figure out what the world is happening. So I'm just curious because it's interesting. I've heard so many people talk about um, how much division there is in the world now. And when they think back to like 9-11, how there was a lot of like connection support trying to help each yeah. other. Yeah. yeah. So my experience is that day, it was a Tuesday. I had locked up this guy for a bunch of stolen cars and he was going to flip. He was going to become a confidential informant and give up some bozo in Department of Motor Vehicles that was pumping out bad driver's licenses. So on the morning of 9-11, my office was in the Bronx. I was going to go down to the Manhattan courthouse with my sergeant. I started at 7 a.m. We were supposed to be down there by 9 a.m. And we would call it's called Queen for a Day. Queen for a Day means there's a bad guy in jail. He gets pulled out with the district attorney, the arresting officers or the investigators and his defense attorney. And he's going to tell you what he knows. Short of a homicide, it can't be used against him for that one day. And we'll work out an agreement that... If he provides fruitful information over a period of time, we'll do court considerations. So instead of going to jail, maybe he'll get probation. Or instead of getting five years, he'll get three years or something. It's up to the district attorney. It's not up to me. So so I show up in the office 7 o'clock. I'm supposed to go down with my sergeant. He's nowhere to be found. He comes breezing into the office after 8. And I go, John, I says, come on. We got to drive 45 minutes into Manhattan, find a parking spot, clock into court. I says, we're going to piss off the district attorney and his defense attorney. This is going to fall through. And he goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's farting around the office. And our office was on the second floor of, uh, of a precinct. And one of the precinct cops ran upstairs and said, uh, a plane just hit the World Trade Center. So we put the television on like everybody else and we're watching it. Here comes the second plane. So we're like, oh shit, now we knew it was terrorism. So the, the call came from downtown. Everybody get into uniform and stand by. And like I said, by 1-1-30, we drove down there. We parked on the west side of Manhattan and you know we walked in and it was like something out of a science fiction movie. It was, um, everything was covered in that toxic dust 
they didn't have uh, like good respirators or masks to wear. We were getting like the Home Depot ones where you're going to demo your bathroom over the weekend. And, um, you know, it, the closer you got to ground zero, the less sunlight there was because of the amount of particles in the air and just yeah. the debris flying around. Like there was paper just raining down on us and out, you know, hours later. And um, it was just wild. Like, the, and I, I always say this, but, and I think we came down Broadway where we were walking. There was thousands of pairs of women's shoes, high heel shoes. So you had all those women that worked in the financial district on Wall Street or actually that worked in the Twin Towers that made it out. Apparently, you can't run in heels. No. And they took their heels off and just, you know, threw them. And everything was covered in that toxic dust. And, um, you know, we got up to the pile and it was like that last scene of Planet of the Apes where like Charlton Heston's looking at the Statue of Liberty head. Like I'm, I'm looking at this tremendous piece of the facades embedded in the concrete. And I'm like, how the hell did this happen? Yeah. You know, and there was all sorts of crazy shit. A guy walked by in a spacesuit with a Geiger counter. I'm like, who the, who's this guy? Like, is this like the government or is this like a guy from New Jersey that had a Geiger counter? It was like, today's the day. You know what I mean? Like he came across the bridge and wanted to check out, you know, mammograms or whatever. So it was there was a while, a lot of wild crap going on down there. And um, we stayed down there from about. 1.30 in the afternoon, we got dismissed about 5.36 in the morning. They told us, go home, run your clothes through a washing machine, and be back here at 5.30, 6 o'clock tonight. And we did that for probably about the first week. Then they, they, they the NYPD was good about that, like rotating us in and out. Then I was out for a while. Then they brought us back after a couple of weeks. We were on the pile. Mm-hmm. So we were like ants, like on a pile of sugar with joint compound buckets of debris just passing it down. And then eventually they got in the heavy equipment to start pulling out like large sections of, of debris. And there's this dump out in Staten Island that had been closed for many years, the Fresh Kills landfill. They reopened it to start bringing that stuff out there and to start sorting through it. So since I worked in auto crime, they had us out in Staten Island. And what we were doing was we were cutting open the cars. So vehicles that were crushed that went into the concourse or were just crushed as they were coming up, we were chopping them open to make sure there wasn't anybody in there. Wow. I can't, yeah, I can't even imagine what that, what that experience was like and to navigate and, and be there with others. Um, I'm sure it was, it has to be something that changes you. It just, it just affects you. And maybe, maybe this is like the right, the right question in a sense though, like, how do I say this? I'm sure the things that you saw are so different than what the average person sees. Like, oh, like, yeah, yeah. Right? Well, I, I, yeah, at a front row seat. Right. Like you have this front row seat. And I mean, the closest most of us can imagine some of these things is like what you see on TV. So it's what you see is so different from what the average person is going to see. Yeah. I mean, it was just like little things I remember. Like I remember a couple of days afterwards, they had us going on rooftops. Um, looking for debris. And I think it was on Murray Street, Lower Manhattan. Like we found a part of the landing gear mm-hmm. on the roof. Wow. It was the wildest. That, yeah. And it was like, it was a distance. So it's like, I can't even imagine like debris that could have killed people. I mean, it was, you know, like part of the landing gear on this right. roof, like blocks away. Wow. So it was, um, yeah, we saw a lot of wild stuff. Wow. And so as you spent time as a detective and you're talking about, like we were talking a little bit before we started, but with cars and theft and rings. And I mean, so, you know, 
Sure. I live in a city, 350,000 people. Cars get stolen. Things happen all the time. But it's always knowing that there's probably, a not always, but there might be a bigger picture involved where it's like part of a ring and it's part of a, right? So um, what were some of the craziest things that you saw while you were, <laughs> I'm sure there's like, maybe let's go with like the top couple ones. Well, okay. So cars are stolen. Well, I, well, I encourage your listeners, if they're interested in auto theft, I wrote a book, Grand Theft Auto, the NYPD's <laughs> auto crime division. And that's loaded with anything you wanted to know about the stolen car industry, a car thief's mindset, what happens to your car after it's stolen, the different types of car thieves, mm-hmm. the scams, how, how they change VIN numbers on cars, how not to get ripped off purchasing a used car, what to look for. Just because you have Carfax doesn't necessarily mean you understand what you're looking at. If mm-hmm. a car has been titled, if it's a newer car and it's been titled in three or four different places within a year or two, chances are there's something up with that car. It's called title washing. They're washing things off that title. Um, cars are stolen for a lot of different reasons in New York. So first, let's go with the lower rung. So you have the garden variety pain in the ass. Mm-hmm. These are people that steal cars and hold on to them. That's teenagers. Teenagers steal cars to be cool. It's a rite of passage crime. It's a way to get around. Hey, look at me. I'm going to drive by the high school dismissal and pick up my friends. They're easy. You pick them off all the time, right? Oops. Then you've got drug addicts, mm-hmm. heroin addicts, crackheads. They steal cars because they, it enables them to get around, commit other crimes, right? Purchase drugs and especially heroin addicts, they're homeless. They steal that car. They commit a couple of crimes. They get a couple of bags of dope, and then they'll park in a parking lot or in a park, and they'll get high and fall asleep in the car. I can't tell you how many times I've locked up people like unconscious, like almost overdosed in a car, and the car was stolen. Then you've got the mid-tier. Those are people that like, so you got kids that are in racing. They're just souping up their cars and they're racing on the weekends and then they blow an engine. Well, if they blow the engine on their Acura, they don't have three grand for a new Acura engine. They're going to steal yours. They're going to bring it in the back of their friend's garage or in a field and they're going to hoist that engine out. Then you have the more sophisticated. So you have in New York at the time and things might have changed, but you have a lot of body shops, um, salvage yards, junkyards, and a lot of the junkyards back then were owned by the mob. So the mob would pay guys to steal cars and, you know, they'd get four or $500 for a stolen car. And that, that car in parts was worth $10,000 or more. So they're getting big money back on their investment, right? People also steal cars to ship them out of the country. Like we used to say, we didn't know how the Dominican Republic didn't sink with all the stolen cars and trucks that, that, that we were sending over there. Right. So we, we, we were, I worked on, organized rings where cars were being shipped to Antigua, Jamaica, Dominican Republic by far was the most prolific. And then I worked on a case where we had Chinese nationals in Brooklyn. They they ran a ring. So you had these Chinese guys in Brooklyn, probably tied to the government. And um, they hooked up with a Jamaican middleman from the Bronx and they would pay the middleman in the Bronx $5,000 a car. The Jamaican middleman would pay the thieves between five hundred and a thousand. Right, the orders were for the cars had to be Audi A sixes, silver and black, and they were stealing twenty five to thirty cars a month. They'd park them in the street, let them cool off to make sure they didn't have a GPS or a navigation system. Then a couple of cars at a time would go out to Brooklyn in the morning, eight nine o'clock in the morning. These guys rented a warehouse right in the city street. The gate would go up. 
Two, three Audis would go in. The gate would go down. Inside, you had Chinese nationals and shipping containers. So they would drive two stolen Audis per shipping container, let the air out of the tires so the vehicles would sit low in the container. Then they would build a wood frame above it and hoist one or two more cars in. So each shipping container contained between three and four stolen truck cars. Then they would have a legit trucking company come to the warehouse a couple of times a week, take the containers out, bring them to Newark, New Jersey. They were loaded on trains and railed across the United States to Long Beach, California. Then they were put on cargo ships and shipped to, uh, where were they going? Shanghai. So this was going on for years. And eventually we, we did that case with um, the Westchester County DA's office. And, uh, and the NYPD is so large that we had Chinese guys. We brought in Chinese detectives from different units that spoke different dialects. So we had guys monitoring um, Cantonese, Mandarin phone conversations, right? Then we had Spanish detectives, or most of our thieves were Spanish, so they were monitoring their conversation. So in addition to this international shipping ring, we quickly realized that our bad guys were in the murder for hire business. And they're talking about whacking this guy and killing that guy. So when we finally took that case down, we cleared between 13 to 15 homicides. So I mean, these guys were into everything. You know, and some of the homicides, I mean, there was they were pretty interesting. It wasn't just like bang, bang, you're dead. It was like a planning into it. And but they were bragging about it and talking about it. So, you know, once we took that case down, one of the main thieves, he never pulled the trigger, but he happened to be, he was kind of like um Forrest Gump, like he was everywhere. And he 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 was a getaway driver on a lot of these homicides. So when we took that case down, we were like, Mario, you better start talking or you're going to jail for the rest of your life. He wound up doing about 10 years, but he buried a couple of guys as far as they're away for the rest of their lives. It's unreal. It's just unreal. Like I know we always know there's more to it. Um, I had a friend who just had their truck stolen um in Toronto. And they were told how, like, you know, they, they had tags in their car, like the air tags, so that you could still find it, which, of course, they found and threw out anyways. Um, but they said the new thing now is that they will go, a lot of thieves will go to the airport, tag, like, tag your vehicle, and then they just follow it for when you take it home. And then it's like, then they steal it right out of your driveway. So Why didn't they just take it from the airport? I don't know. That's what I don't even understand. I don't even understand. But it was unless like, there's a camera. camera. Unless there's a camera. Yeah. All right. So they might capture the image. Yeah, I'm guessing that there's more um, camera coverage at the airport than there is at the home. But yeah, he they were home. It was their second night home, and they woke up and they could hear it, and somebody had taken the car, and so then they were able to track where the air tags were, and you know they're like, "Yep, we know where it is. It hasn't moved for like three hours," and the police are like, "Yeah, I don't think it's there anymore. Like, I think it's." It's not there. And uh, they just, the story he was sharing afterwards, how he's like, you know, I mean, our car is, our truck is gone in pieces. Like it's, it's just gone is literally how it's, there's just, it's worth more. And so it was really fascinating to listen to it and how it's very, it can be very mapped out in how it is done and used. Well, look at it this way. So say for argument's sake, and body shops are involved in this. Not that they have stolen parts laying around, but look at it this way. So you get into a fender bender, you got a Honda Accord, you got a newer Honda Accord, and you get you take you you got a front end point of impact in the front. So your hood's crumpled, you're gonna need a front grill, you're gonna need the fans, right? Headlights and everything. You're gonna go to you get your your insurance companies can say, we'll get some estimates, right? So you go to body shop A and they tell you it's gonna cost four thousand dollars. You're going to pay a $1,500 deductible, and it's going to take about two weeks. 
You go to Body Shop B and they tell you, don't worry about the deductible and I'll have the car back at the end of the week. Well, you're going to go with Body Shop B. But what Body Shop B is going to do is going to send a couple of kids out to swipe that car, probably that color so they don't ever have to paint it, which they'll charge you for the paint anyway. And then what they'll do is they'll swipe it, pull the parts off. A van will show up one morning with the parts. They'll unload it, put everything back on and call you up. Hey, Marsha, your car's ready. Oh, I'm such, I feel like I live under a rock. Seriously. <laughs> then you got enhanced damage. We used to, we used to do this too. So like in New York, we called it the, it was called the Roto program. So when a stolen vehicle is, is recovered in the street, like in order, when I was an auto crime detective, we would take the cars ourselves to the pound, but for a patrol cop, they're not going to get involved in that. So they have each precinct has several towing companies. And a lot of them are linked to body shops, right? So if they recover a stolen car in the street, the cops call the Roto company. The cop fills out a voucher, which is basic, the damage to the car and stuff, but nobody really looks at it. And then they call the owner, and the owner's supposed to go and pick up their car, right? But again, a lot of these, these towing companies also at body shops. So what, what, the, what they'll do is, say for argument's sake, just that Honda Accord we are talking about, right? Precinct cop finds your car, the door lock is punched, and say for argument's sake, they took, say they took a set of airbags, mm-hmm. right? They, they just wanted the airbags. They stole the car and they took the airbags, right? So you show up, you you get a call, and you show up at this tow yard a couple of days later. Now your fenders are missing, the hood's missing. Yeah, this is the way we got it. But Marsha, we'll fix it for you. Call your insurance company. Yeah, you call the insurance company and they're going to put your, they took your, it's called a surgical strip. They took your parts off and hit them in the back, right? Then when you come back a couple of days later, but they're charging your insurance company for the parts and that they painted, it's your parts. You're getting your parts back. So what we would do is we would take a car. We would get these cars from the insurance companies, right? We'd pull out a lock. We'd take an airbag and then we would micro stamp all the parts. Mm -hmm. We'd let it get towed. We'd photograph it. We'd videotape the car getting towed, right? Go to the yard. We'd wait a week, right? Give them a little bit of time. Then, you know, like I'd show up in a suit with the Wall Street Journal and a briefcase. Like I just got out of work. And the car, like I said, is stripped to shit. And then it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll call my insurance company. You take care of that for me. Then we go to pick the car up. It's all put back together with those parts and we would lock them up. Oh, I can't. I was just going to ask, did you have to do a lot of undercover work? Is that what a lot of what your work was? I didn't do a lot, but I did some. Another thing is um, we call it give ups or IJs, insurance jobs. And there's two ways to do run one of those cases. So one is with an informant and you, you know, you, you get an informant, you ask them a lot of questions like, you know, what, you know, some informants are really good. They know a lot of stuff about cars getting shipped out of the country. Some guys are thieves. They can tell you every body shop and that guy's a thief and to put you on it. Then you have guys that are in the insurance fraud industry, right? And what they do is it's known, say for argument's sake, this weekend, your husband, you and your husband go out and your kid throws up in the back seat and it's a lease and the kid throws up in the back seat. You're over on the miles. Mm-hmm. And you got a ding in the front. So you know when you turn in this lease, you're going to get thumped for three or four thousand dollars, right? Yep. But if the car vanishes, the insurance company's going to pay for it. Uh, so you would go to somebody and say, Listen, how much to take this off my hands? Eh, Marsha, give me 500 bucks. Don't worry about it. Give me a couple of days. 
So give me the call Friday. Give me the call Monday, Wednesday, Thursday. I'll call you up. Then you can report it stolen, right? So what we would do is either with informants would bring us cars mm-hmm. and they're not reported stolen yet. And we would photograph it, whole nine yards, photograph it, put it in a lot, but don't put an impound on it in case a cop runs it. And then we've had this car for a week and then someone walks into a police station and says, I had that call last night. I, I had my call last night. Well, it's impossible. We've had it for an entire week. We we would also do like a Craigslist ad, a lease buyout specialist, right? And people, we'd have a, a confidential number and people would call. I, I used to love doing those. So someone called, yeah, I got this brand new car and uh, can you buy me out of my lease? And I, I would, I'd let him talk. And I go, nah, I says, I, I really don't do those, but you want, I'll take it off your hands. Well, how do I know you're not a cop? You don't. Well, how are we going to do this? I don't even want to see you. I don't even want to meet you. Park that frigging thing in the Home Depot parking lot and put the keys under the mat. But give me a couple of days. I don't want to be driving around in this thing before it gets chopped and I'm going to get pinched by the cops. Give me a couple of days. Cars in the parking lot, keys under the mat. We photograph everything. We put the car away one day, two day, three day, four days. A week later, the guy walks into it. So we would do this with 40 or 50 people <laughs> and then just kind of round them up. You know, all at once. Yeah. You know, and depending on the clientele, if people had something to lose, like a lot of times with some of these cases, it was legit people. We would go around a couple, like a week before, and like, because we know they're not running. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Some, yeah. It's attorneys, doctors. You wouldn't believe some of the people we would rope into this stuff. Well, listen, remember that call you reported? I had a guy, it was like a it was like scene out of a movie. He was in front of us. He lived up in New Rochelle. He was, um, he was watering his lawn with his kids. And we pull up. And uh, he's looking at us, and I says, "Hi." I says, "Um, you know, I'm Detective Ferrari from the Auto Crime Review." He goes, "Yeah." I says, "Why don't you tell the kids to go inside?" So he tells the kids to go inside. He's still watering his roses, and I said, "Um, remember that Dodge, ca- that green Dodge Caravan you reported stolen like two months ago?" He goes, "Yeah." I says, "It's not stolen. We know what happened to it." And he just dropped the hose, and he goes. How, how do how do I know you're telling me the truth? I go, the car didn't have reverse because I was the one that took it to the pound. <laughs> so I said, the car didn't have reverse. And he, he knew, like he knew, he goes, what do I do? I says, just get a lawyer and show up at the precinct in two weeks on Monday. Don't make me come up here looking. Don't make me come up here and, and embarrass you in front of your neighbors. And most of the time they would. If our clientele was scumbags or, you know, we knew they were going to run, like they were criminals, they had criminal records, then it's, you know, we get up at four o'clock in the morning. And we're banging on doors six, seven o'clock in the morning, pulling people out of bed. Yeah, no, I'm sure not nearly like not. No, a and we would do that. Like we would, we could. The case could be on television, every network, news media outlet, and we could start that case up a month later and grab another fifty people. I was just gonna say, it's like you could actually share a story like this. Put it out there, have it go, go on the Won't news. Stop and it. People are still gonna do it, right? It's not gonna stop it. Won't stop it. Yeah. Is that, is that just, do you think that people feel like they're untouchable or they're just that that's my only option? Neither. Yeah. No, I don't think they're feeling touchable and I don't think it's their only option. They, if they can part, if they can get out of something and not get caught, then why not? The insurance I've been paying $2,000 a year for insurance on this car for 20 years. I've never made a claim. (laughs) Today's the day. Today is the day. And unfortunately, that day, sometimes someone's going to be coming to your door with handcuffs. Yeah, because it is fraud. Like it is. It is right. Like oh, this, it is fraud. 
Yeah. And, and I, yeah, you're right. When you put it sometimes in that perspective that it's, yeah, I've paid for this for, you know, 20 years, I've never claimed a dime. And right. what's the big deal? No one's going to get caught. I'm not saying I've done that because I haven't, but could, I'm just, this stuff blows me away. Marsha, is this something you'd like to tell us? <laughs> no, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> just having fun. Just having fun. It's like, I just, those stories, we have a lot of friends who um, are police and uh, firefighters. And even some of the stories that they've shared, it's just like, wow, just wow. Just wow. Yeah. Um, so you did for 20 years and then did you decide it was like, you know what, I think I put my time in and I want to go like, did you hit a point where it was heavy, like too much heavy or just curious? I could have done 40 years there, okay. unfortunately, cause I, I, I love the job yeah. and I also loved what I did. I really, yeah. I, I was like a fish to water in that position. What happened is, um, People retire, new supervisors come in. Yeah. And everybody in any job outlives their usefulness, especially mm -hmm. a place like the New York City Police Department where it's so fluid. And probably about my eight, I never thought about retirement. Probably about my eighth year in, I get this new sergeant, has no experience in organized crime. His father was an internal affairs big shot. So he, you know, he was in the major leagues and he never played A ball. Yeah. And um, great analogy. Yeah. He didn't get it. And he he also I used to call him lawn boy because he owned, he owned a, a landscaping company. And then like our hours would mirror his lawn schedule. So if I got a case and I got to be doing nights, he wants to do days. And so that that started me thinking, I'm like, you know, shame on me if there's piss in the pool and I'm still sitting in it. Yeah. And I was able to get away from him. I went to work for another sergeant who I liked a lot, but the writing was on the wall and it was in crayon. It was getting very kiddy, mm -hmm. you know, and at 41 years old, I wasn't old, but you got young people coming in with new ideas. Things were changing. And I said, you know what? It's time to go. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's as, as much as this pains me, I don't want to be like my Lieutenant who hung around too long and was embarrassing himself. Mm -hmm. I wasn't there yet, but and I equate it in one of my books that a 20-year career with the New York City Police Department is a merry-go-round. It really is. You, you got your ups. You got your downs. There's a lot going on. It, it, it's, it's overwhelming. It's a wild ride. But if you don't pay attention, Seabiscuit's going to throw you on your head if, you land, if you're on that, that, that horse for too long. So I said, you know what? Let me go out on my terms. I can yep. always find something else to do. And that's basically how I ended my career. Wow. And so did you immediately go into, I'm going to write, or how did you fall into Oh, no, no, no. I, I retired. No, no, no. I retired, moved down to Florida and I wanted to become a cop again. So mm -hmm. foolishly at 41 years old, I go back to school. I get my certification down here and I'm working for this little police department. And it was like having a stroke and having to learn something all over again. You know, like the rules were different. The prisoners were going in different directions. It was all different. And like in Florida, the emphasis is very big on DUIs, like in New York, especially when I first got started. I can't tell you how many times like we would lock people's keys in their trunk or, or call them a cab or kick them in the ass and just just go just get as long as they didn't get into an accident or hurt somebody. Yeah. It was there's just too much going on in New York. You know what I mean? Well, um, in Florida, they want you to lock everybody up. And, mm -hmm. I, you know, and the 
the BAC or blood alcohol content, it used to be 0.10, right? And I worked in a DUI unit in New York. So I, you know, I knew what I was doing, but like, then they move it to 0.08. And, you know, you're locking up people that made a mistake. I'm not talking about a career or a Hall of Fame drinker that makes it a point of, you know, driving around blowing 0.18 every weekend that can kill somebody. I'm talking about, you know, the TGI Fridays manager who on her birthday had one wine spritzer too many, and you're going to lock her up for 0.09. And now you're going to put her on probation and she's got to hire a lawyer and her insurance is going to go up and she's going to be treated like a child. Mm -hmm. I had a problem with that. Another thing um, in Florida, like in New York, we had crime. We didn't have alligators. And I spent a half a day learning how to like wrestle a gator. And I'm like, there is no freaking way. I I says, can't we just, shoot these things and like no they don't want you shooting alligators in florida and i was like but like i'm not messing with this jurassic park thing you know it's like no man it was like a bad episode what i get paid for this this is not like i didn't go to train to like be yeah 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 and then yeah and like yeah i they don't (laughs) want you shooting alligators and then what was oh i got tased like in new york we had tasers but only the supervisor carried them like in Florida, everybody gets one and they're like, all right, um, you got to have your taser training. So I'm like, all right, so I'm me. I'm figuring we're going to point it at like something and shoot the taser. No, we got tased. I didn't like that. Like you can mace me all day long and twice on Sunday. I don't mind. I can fight through it. I do not like that goddamn taser. It feels like you're having a heart attack. Like I'm standing there and like they don't shoot you with they don't shoot you with it. They tape one of the leads to your armpit and another one to your crotch. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it arcs. And then like they got two morons on the side, either side of you smiling. It's like, are you ready? And I'll never forget the instructor who I wasn't a fan of. He goes, you want the three second ride or the five second ride? I says, make it three and quick. He goes, we'll see. I go, you make that thing go five seconds. I said, I'm going to kick the crap out of you when this is over. So I got the PS. I got the three. But yeah, there was a lot of differences of being a cop in Florida. And I said, you know what? The game has passed me by. I went from being an investig- a detective in, in America's largest police department to a bad episode of Reno 911. I said, you know what? I don't want to do this crap no more. I so I had a couple of different businesses that I had. And then my friends and family says, you got to start writing books. You got all these stories. You know how to tell a story. Just start writing these things down. And I just started writing these NYPD themed books and they started selling. And then I started going on podcasts and, you know, it just kind of took off. I love it. I love it. Um, I think it's so can I ask then, have you had to change stories? Have you had to change names, change people? But are all your stories based on things that happened? All my stories are based on things that happened, but I changed the names, the dates, the locations, the ranks, because I... Do I write about people I don't like? Yeah, absolutely. But I'm not a sour grapes kind of guy to point that out. Like, so sometimes something might have happened to a guy, but I put it that it happened to a female cop or vice versa. But yeah, the names are changed, the locations, the time period. But yeah, like, for example, there's a story in one of my books. There was this guy we worked with and wasn't the smartest guy in the world. And the the quickest way to get in trouble in the NYPD is to lose your gun shield or ID card. If you lose any one of those three items, they're gonna take 30 vacation days and put you on a year disciplinary probation. So this guy lived in a shitty neighborhood. He was going out drinking one night. He didn't wanna bring his gun with him. So he hid his gun in the one place he didn't think anybody would find it, his stove. Puts the gun in the stove, goes out cocktailing, comes back three hours, nine beers later, all liquored up, 
He gets, he's hungry. So he preheats the oven to 425 to make some frozen pizzas. He goes in the living room. He starts channel surfing. You know, there's gunpowder and bullets. The bullets and the guns start exploding. So probably the first one, he was like, what the F was that? Yeah. The second one, it's like, oh, shit. And he had to crawl out of his house on his hands and knees as his gun was shooting at him through the stove. And he had to call emergency service. And they came and P.S. He lost 30 vacation days. He got put on a year probation. And he had to buy a new gun and a stove because the thing just blew blew it to pieces. So, and- yeah, my, my books have like things that went wrong, embarrassing moments. Um, unbelievable stories. There's a chapter in one of my books called Rubbing Elbows, where I bumped into and met famous people, um, cases I worked on. My books don't have a beginning, middle, end. They're just a short compilation of stories. So like you'll go to a chapter in one of my books called Crossing Over to the Dark Side, and there's chapters of police corruption. So how the NYPD handles corruption, cops that I know went bad, what happened to them and things like that. Oh, fascinating. And I think it's like just these snippets of stories that I think is so it's just it's so different, right? It's so different. We don't see a lot of books. of I, I haven't seen a lot of books like this. And I think it's I think it's fascinating to be able to share pieces of what life was like. I mean, I I'm we always joke in my house because like my husband teases me all the time, but I will watch cop shows, crime shows like those are my shows. I'm not watching the, I've never seen a housewife show. I've never even yeah, seen no. the bachelorette could care less. Sorry for anybody who's listening. Just don't care. And, and so it's always been, he always teases me. I'm like, really? It could be worse. I could be the one sitting there watching like all of the reality shows that are. What a tissue. I don't. I don't watch that crap either. No, no. So I I just think it's fascinating, though, because like we also know, like a lot of those shows, they come from stories that happen, right? Sometimes they do. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. Like it's I know I know like when you deal with a lot of orders and things like that, they talk about how a lot of them come from actual stories. And so I just think it's I think it's fascinating. And I love that you're doing that and you're sharing. So how many books have you published now? I've published six, four of which are behind the scenes looking into the New York City Police Department. Mm-hmm. Um, another one is called Confessions of a Catholic High School Graduate. It's got a picture of a kid getting chased out of a, out of a confessional. That really happened to me. Um, I was a little son of a bitch as a kid, always getting into trouble. And my parents sent me to Catholic high school to kind of straighten me out. It was, it was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. So the, so the book is technically about you being that that's you. Oh, yeah. No. Confessions of a Catholic high school graduate is my childhood growing up in the Bronx in 70s and 80s and just the crap that I got myself involved in. You know, this is before video cameras. I think if I was a kid now, I'd be in jail. But as a kid, like, you know, I I always like tell stories like the the best night of the week for us was garbage night. Like we were like wild dog. We would go out, me and my friends, and we would pull stuff out of the garbage like fluorescent light bulbs were lightsabers that would explode. You know what I mean? Or when I was a kid, they were going from vinyl records to cassette tapes and eight tracks, right? We would find like these records and they were like exploding Frisbees. So we'd be running around the neighborhood, whipping them at each other, you know, bouncing off of cars and exploding and whammo made the Frisbee. So we figured that out. So we would throw the Frisbee of death, as we would call it, when it would explode on someone, we go whammo. So, yeah, I, I had a colorful childhood. That's awesome. 
And my husband, I was, I mean, we went through a lot of experiences with our kids growing up. And I remember, I don't know how many times my husband said, he goes like, Marsha, like, I'm telling you some of the things that we did, there was just never proof. Like there was never proof. We didn't have cameras. We didn't have, and if we did, we wouldn't have thought of posting it and sharing it. Like this is the. the, We're telling your parents. Right. Like, no, no, it was just, it was just a very different, it was a very different time. I mean, I see all kinds of jokes about that when you're dealing with Gen X and how it was like, no, like we, I mean, I would get in trouble if I came home too early. That, that was the, that was what life was like then. It was like, you just go out and you come back when it's dark, right? when it's dinner. That's like, and it sounds so strange now, but that's literally what life was like. Awesome. So you're in this space right now. You've got six books published. What's next for you? I'm writing a seventh. I don't have a, a name for a title yet. Um, that'll probably be out the end of the summer. But what I am working on now is I'm going to, from doing five and Ted podcast and radio interviews a week, I'm going to start my own podcast. Um, mm-hmm. It's going to be called, I'm going to, I'm going to name it after my book, NYPD through the looking glass stories from inside America's largest police department. And I've got the artwork and I've got a title and it basically spells out, I'm going to bring on retired NYPD cops that worked in homicide, the fingerprint yeah. division, sex crime, because I have I, all my friends, right? So I can bring them on and talk about things that most people would never know about what goes on in the New York City Police Department. And that podcast should be out probably in a month or so. Oh, that's awesome. Congrats and welcome to Thank the you. podcast world. It's a, I mean, you definitely can do it. There's no question. Um, and what a, what a unique spin for a podcast because there's a lot of true crime ones, but I just love this concept. Um, so I will definitely be checking that out. Thank you. Um, the name of the show, Own Your Choices, Own Your Life. I am just curious, where has there been a point in your life where those words might have rung true? So own your choices, own your life. Yeah. Because it makes me think of like in police force. So sometimes very, so many people, right? That's not me. I didn't do it. It's this whole like. <laughs> All no, the time. <laughs> right? Like it wasn't me. It wasn't me. It was never me. But like own your choices, own your life, taking responsibility for yourself, owning yourself. Just curious, where, where in your life do those words give an example? You know. When I retired from the NYPD, the Merrigan kept going and I stepped off. And I was scared because I okay, now I gotta find my place in society, right? A lot's changed, right? I and and I moved down to Florida, so I lose all my superpowers. So if I get pulled over for speeding, I'm hoping that that trooper is a nice guy and recognizes me as a formal member of law enforcement. Give me a break. I go through a yellow light that turns red. I could get a ticket. Now I'm wearing my seatbelt. Um, I, I had to grow up a lot after I retired from the NYPD and I had to, and I had to realize that I'm not invincible anymore. I, I, I own my choices that I had a wonderful 20 year career with a job that I loved Mm-hmm. And now I've got to live my life a little quieter and differently. Yeah. But I'm going on podcasts. So, I mean, how much quieter, you know, that's, that's not really. It's, different. <laughs> it's just different, right? It's just different. I love it. I love it. Thank you for sharing that. Um, so where can people connect, follow and learn more about you? Because sure. by the so, time this goes out, your podcast will also be live too. Okay. Um, so all my books go to the Amazon, go to Amazon, go into the book section, type in my name, Vic Ferrari, like the car. 
Um, my book library will come up. All my books are $10 paperback or $2.99 ebook download. If you want to get a hold of me on Twitter or Instagram, you got a question or an idea or you want to run something by me, it's at VicFerrari50. And again, my podcast will be available on Apple and all the forums where you can find podcasts. It's called NYPD Through the Looking Glass Stories from Inside America's Largest Police Department. I love it. I love it. Thank you for being here today and for just adding some different energy, spice, and fun. And it's like, because I do talk, I'm not playing it down. We do talk a lot about a heavy, a lot of heavy topics on the show. So it was really just fun to have a different um, perspective. And thank you for sharing all that you did with us. Um, I have one more question for you. Sure. It is what lesson in life are you most grateful for? One lesson, what lesson in life I'm most grateful for? Mm-hmm. My parents, um, my parents always put my brother and I first. I had, you know, it, it, you think your parents are a pain in the ass when you're a kid, you know, they're limiting what you can do and what you can say and how you should act. And the lesson I learned, I mean, is I, I had wonderful parents looking back, you know, and it's, um, it's a shame they're not around anymore and they didn't get to see a lot of the things that I accomplished, but the lesson is that I had wonderful parents. Mm, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. We always think when we're younger, right? That our parents don't know anything and they're, like, they're dead. What do they know? Right. And then all of a sudden it's like you get older and it's like, now as our kids are older and they're paying for things and doing, they're like, oh, this is like this. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. I get it. I get it. Trust me. We weren't making this stuff up when we were, when we were parents. No. No, thank you so much for being here. I love this conversation. Thank you, Marsha. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Own Your Choices, Own Your Life. If you love this episode, I invite you to tag me on social media with your takeaways or share it with a friend. Please, if you feel called, take 30 seconds to leave a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. Until next time, remember when you own your choices, you truly own your life. Mm-hmm.